1: And music. It's all been about just moving forward, not knowing where I was going.
0: The Art History Babes. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Corey. I'm Natalie. And we are the Art History Babes. And we have a very special guest with us here today, Cork Marcheski. Hi, Cork.
1: Hi. Great to be here.
0: We're so excited to have you here. This was just kind of a serendipitous thing that was set up by our our mutual friend Scott. Shouts out, Scott. We appreciate you. Um, <laughs> I'm really excited for this conversation because we've, we've talked once before and you just have some incredible stories about art and the art world. And I think our audience is, is going to really love some of the things you have to say. Also just, you know, our previous conversation, I feel, I feel like you are on the art history babes wavelength. Like we think very similarly (laughs) um, about just, you know, moving through the world and creating art and kind of letting things happen. And yeah, I'm just, I'm just excited that you're here. Maybe to get us started, can you tell everyone a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, I've been a full-time artist and musician (sighs) since when you get to this age, it gets a little fuzzy when you go back past 50 years but I think I started to play professionally music uh, in clubs in San Francisco in '64, and I got headlong into art uh, the same year. And it's been it's been that it's been art and music um, and children. I mean, they just happened along the way, <laughs> and they've been wonderful. I mean, yeah, my life has been so much better by having kids in it, hmm. and and I. Any story I tell is usually more important the trip than the end, because that's what fascinates me, um, how you get someplace. And, and also always having to set, there's a little work that a listener has to do. If they want it to make any sense at all, you have to be able to attempt to gather a real scent, a, a sense anything you can to make it tangible of what a period of time is so that the event is not warped by the history that you may have uh, encountered because this event was way before that history. So it's for $3, you saw six hours of music at the film or auditorium. So it's three bucks for the doors, Jimi Hendrix and the soft machine, same night, Six hours of music, two hours per band, three days running, no reservations. Everybody got in. It was not, in quotes, special. It sounds special now. And it was wonderful and exciting. But at that moment of time, it was more like going to the food co-op. I mean, music had a function which was sustenance and, and connection among a group of people. So... If we're going to talk about my meeting Duchamp, we're, we're going back to um, 1965 and my um, awakening to fine art. I was involved in music. I had an art history class that I was taking because it was essential to get an Associate of Arts degree. It was a two year college. I was in to escape the Vietnam War. That's the only reason I went. This class was very interesting because the teacher clearly gave a shit about the students. He was there for himself and he was in a reverie as he spoke about these people and that he brought me in with him. This was just a great story about great people. But when he got to Dadaism, it started to make sense. It really started to make sense. The simplicity of a little country being able to say, you guys have a war, we're not going to have it, and creating this amazing spot for artists from all over the world, writers, dancers, poets, to show up. So you've got this Petri plate just absolutely ripe for something to happen. Kirchfetters' W poem is the thing that pushed me over the edge. When um, Mr. Steiger said Kirchfetters, who was a... Famous collagist, did some paintings, did drawings, uh, wonderful poems like the Ursonata in 1924 in a cabaret, had the letter W on a piece of paper, probably 18 square, held it over his head and recited it 250 times, each time with a different tonality, with different volume, timber, texture, and then threw the letter on the ground and said this was the greatest poem ever written. Well, my body, not my mind, spirit, or anything else, my precognitive, pre-linguistic body understood this. Like the only thing I'd ever understood like that before was when I first heard a black gospel choir. Both of these things rang my chimes like I cannot tell you. And because basically I'm a simple person. I follow the voice that I hear in my head. Other people may drill holes to get them out. I have a really good conversation that's been running for well over 70 years. And I started to take art classes and I started to buy art books. And this is another one of those try to imagine I go to the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art and to the um, Palace of the Legion of Honor, the only two museums in San Francisco of any quality. They have bookstores. The modern art section of the books are about three feet in totality. Within that three feet, you have Matisse, you have the Fauves, you have some post-impressionism. Picasso, um, Calder, and then you see a few books published by the George Wittenborn Company, the documents of modern art. And everything that looked like anything that I would want came from the Wittenborn Company. They were inexpensive. I don't know if you're going to be able to see one. This is a Wittenborn book. They're paperbacked, they're really cheap to make. This is, I think, 1944, Max Ernst Beyond Painting, and an entire list of the work that was he was offering. And it wasn't casual reading. If you were an orthodontist and you got orthodontist monthly, this would be it. This was not written for people who wanted to be entertained. You already had the goods, you had the tools, this was something that you could work on. And I started to write to him because many of the books that he had listed in his catalog page weren't available. And the guy would write back and I'd send him $2.50, and he'd send me books. And after about a year, I bought all of the books that there were to buy from him, which was probably maybe $50 worth. I told him I was coming to New York City because my mom and dad, bless their hearts, uh, Italian immigrants not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination, bought me a ticket to New York City because they knew that's where all the galleries were and the museums and heard me babble on about this crap forever. So before Christmas, in winter, I go to New York, stay at the Henry Hudson Hotel, 15 bucks a night. And first place I go is to Wittenborns, which I think was on 53rd. And I'd never been in a bookstore that was on the second floor, my entire life had been first floor bookstores. I found it really interesting. And you go in, you open the door, and there's one of the industrial desks that you'd see in any um, any factory or on a a Navy vessel, heavy metal, green, large, functional, and then stacks of metal shelves behind them in the same kind of color. And it wasn't a bookstore. In terms of what I'd been used to, where you've got a bunch of books on tables and things leaning against walls or on stands, this was more like a library with pamphlets and papers, etc. I talked to him. He knows me. You know, Mr. markeski great. Thank you. I've enjoyed our going back and forth. And then I said, well, you don't have much in the way of books on Marcel Duchamp. And he said, well, that's very true. And we talked about the very first show that Marcel Duchamp had done in America. His first retrospective anywhere in the world was in 1963 at the Pasadena Art Museum. And uh, Walter Hopps, amazing curator, uh, one of the people, uh, along with James Newman, put California on the map in terms of art. Duchamp was just starting to sort of be awakened I mean it's hard to imagine now that you know you're saying Duchamp wasn't necessarily known by everyone there wasn't six coffee table books that you could pick up at Barnes and Nobles so he says well you know you've been such a wonderful customer and I can tell you're sincere would you like to meet Marcel and you know I didn't even think I said absolutely sure and it was it was so natural it was so simple it was a phone call Marcel, you know, it's this is George, it's this nice young man from California who's flown all the way out here, and he would really like to meet you just to say hello, and he knows your work. He knows everything about you. He won't waste your time. And that was it. I caught a cab. I wasn't going to take any cabs because I didn't have much money, but this was a cab ride worth taking. Then. Went down into the village. Uh, I forget if it was 10th or 11th Street. And you walk up four flights of stairs, you knock on the door, and his wife opens the door. And he's sitting across the room in a leather chair, with a white shirt and cardigan sweater and a cigar. And in front of him is a chess set made by Yves Tangay. And I go in, and I must have looked... I think I told you this last time, like a girl who just met Elvis. <laughs> this was just too good. And he's, he's very bemused that someone's come to meet him and to talk to him. And, and, and he says, you know, young man, blah, 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 a little bit. Who am I? Who is he? And he says, well, is there something we can talk about I can help you with? And I said, I have to know about the um, armory show. We have to start with the armory show. What, what was that moment like? What was Stieglitz like? What was 391 like? What was that, this birth of modern art in America? And, and people being so angry about a painting. Uh, cartoonists drawing pictures of your painting, nude descending the staircase and calling it explosion in a shingle factory. And another one called Rude Descending the Staircase, and he was just, he was so pleased at the, um, I think it my truly youthful enthusiasm that we we talked about. He said, you know, they didn't know what was really going on at the time, and when Brancusi couldn't get his sculptures off the boat because they didn't meet the um, clearing, um, the the, um, customs Explanation of what sculpture is, and what they had to go through to get these pieces of artwork off the boat and into the uh, armory uh, to be seen. And we talked about the Ahrensbergs. I was fascinated about the Ahrensbergs. and I already knew that his mom and dad had allowed him to get his inheritance before they died, which is something that you do in France. Apparently, you can do this; it's common. And that's the money that brought him to New York and sort of got him set up. And the Aaronsburgs were true patrons, not, not casual, occasional patrons. For the rest of his life, they made his life comfortable and possible. And I was interested in the salons in terms of the people that would gather around the Aaronsburgs And, I mean, their generosity, and they would go – Someplace in the uh, summer for three months, they'd let Duchamp have their house. So it was that that's the kind of thing that I, I talked about and just asked if everything I'd read about Dadaism and Zurich and all of that stuff was even close to true. And that's where it came back to George Wittenborn and the Robert Motherwell assembled The Dada Painters and Poets. Great book. It's not a book. It's a document because all of the artists were alive and were interviewed for the book. So it's not an art historian's or curator's speculation. This is what happened. And all of these people were talking about it simultaneously. And he said it was wonderful. He said, you know, I was like your age with these people doing these absolutely strange, silly, funny things that became something much larger. And that's how I met Marcel Duchamp. And it was just, it was sweet. You don't think about using it with that man and the scale of his work, uh, but it was just a very sweet meeting.
0: We have a, past professor from grad school, we actually took an entire seminar on Duchamp. So we're, uh, I guess, very well versed in academic Duchamp, you know, like we had we had to read a lot about him and um, even just being close to a professor who wrote a book about him. Yeah. And people like, love talking about that guy. Yeah, <laughs> People love to talk about him. And I get it. You know, um, there's a lot about his work that was very revolutionary but I've never met someone who met him or was able to actually interact with him and even that context just kind of sheds a whole new light on things right like you think when especially like from our perspective learning about Duchamp like in an academic setting and it's this like almost big like monumental thing and then like hearing about just this very simple human interaction it it's it's just a whole different way of looking at him and his work and it's a way that I don't think he's thought about like in terms of art history kind of going back to what you said at the very beginning of the episode is when we think about decades past especially decades that we weren't alive for like you think about the history that you've learned like you don't really think about it It
2: automatically gets a sense of reverence that Mm -hmm. isn't maybe necessarily accurate now that we're having you know a more honest discussion about Duchamp.
1: Well, but it's uh, it's reverent the way you uh, you absolutely you, you love a cat or a dog or a friend Yes everything that's got any value is completely intangible. You, you can't buy it, you can't make it happen. you just have to absolutely let things go and let them take you someplace you don't even know where
0: yeah i think also just what makes that story so special is like just the you know the serendipity of it at all you just kind of following like going literally going with the flow like it's the definition of going with the flow and things happen and that like personally just speaks to me because in a lot of ways that's how a lot of the most amazing things in my life have happened, you know, it's never, mm-hmm. it's never the stuff you plan out meticulously. It's always just kind of when you're moving, things start to happen.
1: Yeah. If you want to be really no fun, plan it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> really
1: nail it down. So nothing can happen. Um, oh, I true. mean, it, in, in the same, in almost exactly the same vein and it just sort of, follow this train of thought i had i had another event that uh, led me to working with samuel beckett and it, it, even though he's not specifically art history it i've never separated beckett out from art at yeah. all uh, it was probably 64 65 i'm playing with my band we are invited to play at San Quentin prison for the January 1st celebration. Every year, San Quentin had a huge celebration. So in 1964, San Francisco, like New York, had all these cabarets, had these big showrooms. Uh, Being a musician, I made my living as a musician. Six nights a week, five hours a night, playing in the clubs in North Beach. I, I paid my rent, put myself through school, as a musician, so when they invited us to go to San Quentin, I just said, "Yeah." I mean, how often do you get to go and leave? So we go to San Quentin. There's a bunch of good people on the uh, bill: um, Vince Guaraldi, Buck Owens and the Buckaroos, Eartha Kitt. Uh, it just—it it was a six-hour show, and we go in. We're the smallest group we opened the show and we're back backstage and i'm 15 minutes with the stage manager a guy named rick clucci and we just liked each other right away just talked about things and had a very long sentence he'd already spent I don't know, five or six years and but we had a nice conversation and we played packed up went home and 13 years later in 1978 i am awarded the Deutsche Akademisches Ausstausdienst, the D-A-A-D Award. The very best artist award you can get, unless you consider the MacArthur. It's a completely different kind of award. But you, your family, your pets, whatever you want, are brought to Berlin. You were installed in a home, an apartment, given a studio, given 2,500 Deutschmarks a month, and guaranteed an exhibition in a museum in Germany, and you're there for a year. And anything you need in the way of help, it's given to you. The first couple of weeks, we're just meeting people. And we end up at a general get-together, just the new artists meeting each other. And there's this guy, and he's looking at me, and I kind of recognize him, and we introduce each other, and it's Rick Clucci from San Quentin. And it was like, Apparently, when you meet somebody that was in the joint, even though it wasn't with you, we were together, there's a bond. So we hugged and laughed and all this other shit. And of course, the conversation's weird when you're talking about, oh, this guy was in San Quentin with me for uh, yeah. <laughs> 45 minutes. Uh, <laughs> He's is, he is there because while in San Quentin, he was uh, uh, one of the founding members of the San Quentin Drama Workshop. They wanted to produce Samuel Beckett's plays, especially Endgame, and wrote to Beckett and said, we can't afford to pay any rights for the permissions they use your play. And Beckett wrote back and said, you can have all of my work free of charge on one condition. You write me daily notes on the entire production. Beckett loved the concept of having Endgame played in a prison where The theoretical whatever of the play was real. So Beckett becomes a sponsor for Rick. And Beckett writes many letters and contacts people that are very well-known in San Francisco in the arts. And they spring Rick after 11 years. Beckett writes letters for him. He gets the DAAD, the same grant that I had. And we meet in Berlin. And he is there to be directed and produced by Sam Beckett. And he said, Well, you gotta work with him. And I said, You don't even know what the fuck I do. He said, Doesn't matter. We were in prison, you're here, we're here, it's gonna be good. And so for the next year.
0: I appreciate that camaraderie. That's great.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I I got to work with, with Sam. I mean, you I'm not being silly, everybody called him Sam, and it was fantastic because the minutiae of Beckett's vision was right up my alley in terms of my sculpture. So uh, many of the pieces that I make are visually incredibly simple. Imagine a Mark Rothko that is actually made of light. And there is nothing there that is a, a screen or a projection device. It is the intangible made palpable. And again, going back to this whole thing about cats and kids and what love is essentially made of is why I use light because it is here and you can see it in any language. You can recognize it intuitively, internally. But man, when you turn it off, it's gone. You're left with a wall. And Sam really dug that. And I helped him work I did, I did sets for a couple of pieces. One was, uh, wasn't was much of a set. I just made a, a, a suggestion that um, for Endgame, at the end of the stage is normally two, he called them tons. They're like garbage cans, and Nag and Clove, mom and dad are in the garbage cans, and they have lids on them. And I said, well, if you build the stage up three feet, the cans will only be two feet. And when you lift the lids and they come out, the sense of compression will be incredible. Everybody in the audience will understand visually. As a sculptor, you know what this stuff looks like and what people think about. I'm sorry if I'm getting excited.
0: (laughs) That's great. Never apologize for getting
1: excited. (laughs) But it was so cool. And when you work with Beckett, if Sam says you're gonna build a stage three feet higher with a couple of big holes in the end. They did, just like that. We put neon rings inside the garbage cans so that you didn't have, and this again, this was a part of a conversation I couldn't have with too many other people, but Beckett understood that the spotlight, which he used a lot in his work, you can see the particulate matter creating a cone, which goes back to the spotlight. And what you really want simply is the illumination of, like, in Not I, the woman's lips. That's it. It's a, When you do that play and Beckett is there, the exit lights are gone. Any leak of light is gone except for this one visage of these lips and these words. So I said, get rid of the spot and watch. When you open this, they will be illuminated. And then when you close it, it's almost like pouring liquid back in something because the light goes back with them. So we did that one. And then with Not Eye, we did the whole thing with a little tiny floating neon ring that is blocked out. So the light only sits on the mouth and the effect was fantastic. But anyhow, I just felt lucky. I am lucky. And um, I, love, I love art the way that I've introduced myself. To it and how it has treated me, even with the crap stuff. At the end of the day, I come out way in the plus side.
0: It's, from my perspective, really refreshing to hear someone. Who has had so many experiences within the art world and with just big names talk about it from such a just like honest, excited, passionate place. So much of it, I feel, just gets like boxed in, and we're told like what's important about art and like what we need to value. And it's all kind of hierarchical bullshit. And unfortunately, there's a lot that goes on within the art world where I, I just, I don't get that feeling from people. I don't get that, that pure enthusiasm about making things all the time, especially just from people that have, you know, that, a uh,
1: very specific caching.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that, you know, that certain like People who make their whole identity being like, I'm an art world person, but they don't actually seem to care about art. (laughs) Like, I feel like that's a very common type of person. (laughs) Yeah, they're like their career art historians
2: are like it's. I mean, that sounds bad because I guess technically we are too, but
0: <laughs> you know no, I know. Mean? But yeah, like it's just like their identity is being into art, but I don't actually get a feeling that they care ab- about it on like a deeper level. And so and that's just something I don't know. I've, I've seen a lot of at least in my experience um, with some of the like elder generations in the art world and it's so exciting to meet someone who has had so many interesting experiences and is still just lit up and excited about it like Mm -hmm. that in turn is very exciting I think for us too to like see that it's not that art hasn't been turned into this like kind of over intellectual Institution mess. that's very hierarchical. That it it, it yeah. can still be about just the excitement of making things and like the excitement of learning about the other things people make and the excitement of having these experiences.
1: You know. Well, I, I mean, I there's a visceral. Yes. Part. Yes. I mean, a couple of things like Duchamp and 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 Beckett were people. Duchamp has a, got a hell of a sense of humor. And I don't think a lot of people would be comfortable knowing that he's a sly guy and really enjoys people creating these fusses that he, it was a smile. It was the, you know, the cat that ate the canary smile in terms Mm -hmm. of a lot of this stuff.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And the, um, I mean, the big rule, if you want to be a professional artist, a successful artist, a, a famous artist is, you make some work, you make some work, you make some work. And all of a sudden, this particular show sells. If you want to be a famous artist, that's it. You can modify it a bit. You can change it a little bit, but it has got to continuously maintain to have the recognizability of that moment. Look at Warhol. Uh, look at Lichtenstein. You think Lichtenstein was in love with those Ben Day dots? But the money came in. And you can look at other artists like uh, John Chamberlain. Um, When he left all of his crushed cars and started making the giant foam rubber knots, he was in the toilet. Mm. Nobody wanted this. They wanted those crushed cars. And you have to be willing to um, say that this is it. I I'm a full-time professor. I've accepted tenure and i can only do so much now or it's going to be taken away. And it, it's for those of us that have heads filled with ideas and got to make them. It just does not matter what they are, good, bad, or indifferent. You got to make them. Um, and you do it. And you meet people and you see things. And it's, it's a really good thing.
0: Something just about that concept definitely really resonates like i I think especially right now in the internet age of like having to keep up with algorithms and having to like please mm. your social media audience it's it's kind of a new an an updated version of that of like people might decide that they like something you create, but then they just want more of that. And unfortunately, that becomes kind of a box. And I think that's an issue that a lot of artists and a lot of creators can really relate to. Like having all these ideas, just wanting to make new things and kind of being done with the old thing and wanting to move on but the old thing was what made you money. So, like, what do you do now, <laughs> you know? And, like, ultimately, like, that's a hard place to be in because, obviously, like, artists want to survive and, like, want to have a lucrative career. But I think anyone who creates, like, the excitement comes from, like, the next idea and the new thing and the new experience.
1: And, you know, you do you want to... you. You, if you're having a successful relationship, um, you know, with a partner or something, you can't freeze that moment. If you do, you're screwed. <laughs> it, you have to let so things true. change, and that's where the good stuff comes from. And uh, <laughs> the
2: speaking truths over I know, and, and over like, again. Over out, man. <laughs> I, mean, I,
1: I think I. Very few people will say that they were blessed with dyslexia, but it has been a huge gift to me in terms of having to use my perception to navigate my way through life. And even though I'm, I know a lot of stuff about art formally, I'm, for me what's missing and has been missing starting in 1973 with the Skull Auction uh, is people are afraid to solo. I mean, as, as a musician, the moment when that idea comes to you and you are allowed the nature of the framework is, you know, here's the frame, here's the canvas, now go, is missing in art. It didn't, you, I mean, up until 1973, New York City was grad school. It was just continuation of grad school. It was fantastic. It was amazing. The dealers were fun. The collectors were fun. The buying sausages and beer and hanging out after the gallery closed and just talking about stuff.
0: You're making me miss
2: grad school. (laughs) Right? That's all we want to do all the time. That's why we started this podcast.
1: (laughs) But, you know, that... uh, Maybe you know someday we can talk about the the skull auction because it's i've tracked it. I saw it happen that, uh, that night, and big money just turns every how can something so common you know get take a hundred bucks out of your wallet, give it to me i'll give you my hundred, and there you go it's completely common there's nothing about it that is unique other than a number and I'm not having it. I mean, <laughs> not, nope. that it, not, not that anybody cares. But,
0: uh, we care, Cork.
1: We care. Yeah, we
0: care. <laughs> We're with you. We stand behind you. Cork.
1: <laughs> I have my own world that it, it makes me happy. You know, I've, uh, I learned to have children and absolutely love the process. One of the greatest uh, achievements I ever had, I was asked on NPR for some interview I did, you know, what's the greatest thing that you've ever done? I said, I never missed any one of my kids' performances, be it reading some god-awful something in first grade, playing something that sounded like people beating on cans in another grade, didn't matter. Whatever she did, I was there. I only missed one thing, and that's because... Her commitment came after I had committed to something. Other than that, her entire career, and she's in in New York now, uh, working on being an actress. And that's I mean, it's, but it's all the same. I don't separate that work. That work with my kid, with my partner, completely informs the substance of my art. Yeah. Um, otherwise, it's just not worth doing.
0: Also kids the the creation of children kids art kids music is some of the most inspiring stuff in the world if you ask me like like i lived with my niece and nephew for a year not too long ago and like my niece would come down and like say them just the most brilliant things about like the art we'd make together and I'd be like that's like that's like life-changing shit you just said <laughs> profound yeah. very Coming profound. A, what, like five-year-old mouth yeah and it's just like and and we would we'd sit there and we'd make art together and like her thoughts would like inform the things I was making and I think it was better for it for sure so like I don't know. I I don't have children, but like I feel like if you didn't take advantage of those experiences, that's just like untapped, you know, potential right there. <laughs> Corey's giving you a cheat code right now. Everyone, if
2: you have a child. <laughs> tap into that creativity it's right there.
1: Use your kids' creativity. <laughs> yeah, you know, well, it's it is. It's it's probably one of the greatest gifts of being alive as a human. You don't have to have your own kids. You just have to have. People around you, mm-hmm. all different so kinds of people, you know, make life a sandwich—a really big sandwich with a lot of stuff on it.
0: Yeah, <laughs> um, that actually reminds me of something I, I kind of wanted to touch on, and was actually from our conversation when we talked a couple weeks ago. And I remember we were talking, and it actually just like like I stopped because your exact wording—it was exactly how I had actually been thinking about some things involving my own life recently. It's so much so that like I've got it in my like iPhone notes. It was like actually very <laughs> weird how similar to what I was thinking, what you said was, and you were just telling me these amazing stories, telling me about meeting Duchamp. And you said um, you just have to be willing to bump into shit. Yeah. Yeah. And I like I have I'm serious. I have like a note in my iPhone from pre like before that conversation where I was writing, I don't know, ideas, poetry or whatever. And I wrote something about like bumping into things and seeing like what shapes the bruises are yeah. and like. Yeah it's a concept that I, I resonate with a lot because I feel like my life has been a lot of bumping into shit. So when you said that, I was just like, this is it. This guy's got it. He's figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> and I got very, very excited. But um, if you would speak a little bit more to that, just because you've had so many interesting experiences just as an artist, but also as a human. And I think I think that's something that can be very valuable in thinking about how he moves through this world, like the value of bumping into things.
1: Well, there, I mean, there's a very. Um, I was just writing about this the the other day. Andrea, my my wife of 23 years, and I have clearly we get along really well. We really like each other, but <laughs> I had the opportunity to experience perfect moments. And these are not things that could be created. It's, um, we were in Oakland, California. Our our daughter was doing a play. Andrea had been working all day on sets and refreshments. And I came over to have dinner with her like five o'clock. They were just at this place, monkey something. I don't even remember the name of it, but we really liked it. We're sitting on an empty street at a table in Oakland. So an Oakland street is an Oakland street. It's really a street. And the sun was out, the food was good. And the two of us could just feel that it never was going to get better in that moment. This was a moment of of perfection. It was like a a Higgs boson that had escaped a diesel-powered Bulgarian collider and ended up glancing us in giving this moment a type of gravity, gentle, warm gravity that absolutely said, this is the most human thing you can experience. And it happens to us more than just occasionally. And it's certainly not, it's just two of us happen to allow this moment of grace to occur and say, this is it. It, And for me, that completely Uh, expresses my journey in art and music. It's all been about just moving forward, not knowing where I was going and not being afraid to step into the elevator, even checking to see if there was an elevator there. You just go. And I I work with a a 23-year-old young woman who's, who's great, and she's an artist, and a lot of her questions are these questions because we're there working on pieces, and she wants answers. And I keep telling her, you know, well, well you're doing it, you know? <laughs> you're seeing that I don't know what I'm doing, and you're not knowing what you're doing with me at the same time and we'll end up doing something. And there's sort of like a, an informing that takes place, as you do not doing unless it's a buddhist activity where you're consciously saying i am not doing this where then the not doing becomes something but in terms of being an artist or a musician you just got to do it and trust that what you discover simply by getting started is what you will end up with that'll be good that i get to at all what you'd ask me, I'm sorry.
0: Yes. <laughs> no, that was great. That was fantastic. Um, and I think that kind of also goes back to what I find so refreshing about this conversation is it feels like a lot of people aren't aren't willing to admit that. They want to be like, I have an expertise and I, I know uh, what's going on and there's a way for me to share with you what you should know. And that's bullshit (laughs) art historical dogma is the worst yeah and so it's just I I appreciate someone who has had an interesting you know career and interesting experiences and makes great art that is willing to say no like I don't actually know what's going on because you have to like take that first step before you can even figure it out like that in itself I think is so valuable to creators i think it's so valuable to a lot of people that have maybe gone through art school in recent decades and have been um maybe bombarded with like no you have to do it this way you have to think about it this way yeah like bombarded with like some kind of like artistic dogma exactly and it's like that I think has limited a a lot of us, a lot of creators, a lot of artists, because we think that there's some right way to do it. I know. I mean, I'm speaking mostly from personal experience, but I was very limited as an artist for many years because I just thought I was doing it wrong for so many years, I thought there was a right way to do it and I was doing it wrong. So I didn't do things. And then over the years I was like, well, I'm just going to do things anyways. And then eventually I started making art that like, sometimes I don't love it. And sometimes it's pretty cool. And it just like grows on itself. And yeah, I think just hearing from people with a lot of experience that you just have to like go for it is just an incredibly valuable thing and something I want to emphasize and keep saying over and over, yeah. scream it into the void <laughs> as much as possible. <laughs> this this could save a young art career because I
2: legitimately quit making art at 18 because I thought I was never going to get better, which is a wild thing to think at 18 years old, like to think that I had maxed out and that, I wasn't going to grow and it's because I was afraid because yeah, there was so much seriousness and so much like polarity that was imbued in me and like there's right and there's wrong and there's good art and there's bad art. And I was just like, I was like, no, I'm just going to talk about it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And that actually goes back to what you were saying about Duchamp, right? Like we, we have this reverence for Duchamp, but like he, Understood the absurdity of it all, like he was just making jokes and like kind of making fun of the whole thing to a certain degree, and there's such a a release that happens there, I think which,
2: yeah, which is probably one of the reasons that he's maybe like one of the only artists from grad school that we still enjoy talking about <laughs> because I think that like the arch of or like the uh, narrative arc of our relationship to Duchamp was that it started out a little bit more serious and academic, but he has that underlying absurdity. And we were lucky enough to be taught about him in a way that really did highlight that. So we could always come back to him even as we move further away from the typical art historical canon. It's like we can still connect back to Duchamp, which is kind of nice, like our little anchor.
0: Yeah, and I think it... it it becomes even more like layered and beautiful when you realize like the more you lean into that, the more you can see like the underlying beauty and what's so exciting and what's so great about enjoying art or making art. Like it's like you have to get through, like you have to, you have to take the path of the absurdity first and then you can like actually see what it's about, you know?
1: And get rid of any concept of good.
0: Yes. <laughs>
2: Please.
1: I mean, I, that might be, yeah, I, I never worried about being good. Just never. I just, you know, if you've got poison oak, you're going to scratch it. <laughs> and uh, that's as sophisticated I, as I get in terms of why, how. I mean, I, I see things and I make the things that I see. Or I don't even see. I just have an inkling. I'm working on a trying to make a piece of wood glow right now. I have no idea why, but it just doesn't really matter. Yeah. <laughs> so, I love
0: that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, that's so great <laughs> it's, it's, it's got it's got to be fun. It, and it cannot be separated out from other parts of your life that are significant. And if you're really willing to go there, all of its significant in this very light-hearted way. And I'm I'm hoping, uh, if anybody's listening, that um, and they're in art school, not to be afraid just to do not, not self-expression where you know you put paint all over yourself and, and writhe on a canvas, but listen to yourself, because you know things that nobody else does in such a good way. To try to look at him.
0: Hmm. Uh
2: <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, wish I was in art school right now. I'd
0: be so Love, inspired. It. <laughs> Love it so much. <laughs> I told you, I told you, you are you're on the art history babe's like way of thinking. <laughs> like <laughs> Yes, people are
2: listening. People who are in art school are listening. So I think they're going to really enjoy that message.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. And I think just from what what you've shared and also just like what I know about your life is like you brought up um, Lichtenstein and like, you know, just names we know, like famous artists that we know about and they have some kind of weight because, you know, we, we know about them. They're written about in like our art history textbooks or whatever, but in the few conversations I've had with you, I I find what you've shared about your life to be a lot more illuminating and interesting than just well, like looking at a Lichtenstein. So like,
1: if you're like, going to be that kind of famous, you're going to be a Rolex watch. Yes, <laughs> I mean, that's it. You know, there's people buy that stuff. The new purchasers, they're not collectors, but the new purchasers or purchasers of art need you to know what it is that they have purchased and how much it costs.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's a that's a big issue that we we talk about regularly with like the art market and how it kind of all goes down. It's, it's complicated because obviously we, we want all artists to be able to like live and get paid for the stuff that they make 100%. But like, I also want artists to have full lives, you know, (laughs) like full creative expansive lives. And I want their art to reflect that, you
2: know, it's weird that artists can't have not can't but it's it's a lot more complicated for an artist to find a balanced career where they just make like a very like livable wage versus there being these kind of extremes that we imagine in the art world of like artists making you know six figures per piece versus the trope of the starving artist or just an artist who can't get off the ground which is common you know that's it's a trope for a reason like Making art is it takes a lot, and it's undervalued tremendously in our society. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's
1: well, this is another conversation that can really go on because you are it's s- all we do. <laughs> it's, yeah, well, it's it's one it's one of the things I'm so interested in beyond the making of and the history of is um, the mechanics. And I was given a front row seat. My, my work was so weird in terms of not being like anything else that was being made at that time. A lot of my pieces actually had huge rooms filled with live electrical arcs kind of raining down from the ce- ceiling. Other artists in New York um, found it completely non-threatening. You know, if you're John Clem Clark... And somebody's going to buy one of your pieces, they're sure as hell not going to buy one of mine. And it, it opened doors to be able to look into other people's lives, um, see how things worked, listen to conversations with dealers and collectors and seeing what was different between them and me just from my own uh, personal information. And, but it is, it's a long conversation because it starts with that 73 auction at Sotheby's and then the uh, Lower East Side scene and the advent of Mary Boone, uh, which is really interesting because that ties into Studio 54 and into a whole mindset that uh, you're going to take at least another hour to talk about. Are we
0: setting up a podcast series with yeah. Corp right now? I think we might be. <laughs>
1: I would be happy to yes. talk to, I'd be happy to talk to you anytime. It's just that they're it's it's my life. and it would have been my mom's life if she'd had a chance. I owe so much to my mother and my grandmother and my grandfather that um, their support of the arts, not just me, but anybody I dragged home, got the full Marki treatment. My mother was an opera singer that was going to be professional. She'd gotten a contract with the San Francisco opera company to be in their chorus. She was 17 when she was about to get married at 18. My grandfather and dad said, now you're married. You can't be in show business. And it killed her. She, she could not control, not singing. She had to sing for my entire life. I grew up in supermarkets, in elevators, anywhere that there was a tune. Aurora sang, and she sang well. And it, it was just my life. I took it for granted. Everybody's mom sang. And, and she, she made a huge difference. She certainly gave me and my sister all of the courage to run out, bump into walls, and be professional fools. And we did. And I'm still doing it.
2: I mean, that there's like a very, you know, sad undercurrent to that story of her not getting to live her dream. But it's kind of it is beautiful that she then diverted that energy and then it so deeply got to affect you. And, you know, like it probably wouldn't have been the same effect had it not just been part of your everyday life. I, I definitely think that that is something that I see in you, that art is just part of life. And it's it's really a beautiful thing.
1: Well, carry. thank you. And it's, she, my mom was going to be sure that her kids did whatever it is that they wanted. She had no concept of what we were going to do it was good, bad. You know, mom, I'm going to be an axe murderer. Well, oh, just make sure those people deserve it, honey. You know, <laughs> do a good thing. You <laughs> that for yourself. Uh, it's a good mom. You know, and it... They, um, when we play, we played all of the topless clubs in North Beach. Everyone they showed up, we played the Fillmore, they showed up. Whatever my mom came to San Quentin when we played San Quentin, she was in the audience, she wasn't going to miss seeing Earth a Kit, so obviously,
0: yeah,
1: (laughs) Yeah. it was just that kind of support takes people. Maybe again, I've always felt. You know, if I was to write a book, it would be Travels of a Fortunate Fool because Great title. I, I just don't I don't have a full toolkit, but that does not stop me from attempting to build.
0: To To add on to that, I feel like sometimes the more people put weight on their toolkit, it can prevent them from building. Yeah. Yes. It can hold people <laughs> back sometimes and. Finding that sweet spot is a complex but beautiful thing, I think.
1: My daughter, I think, is at a, at a point where she's has one semester left of um, Atlantic School of Theater uh, in New York City. Uh, it was David Mammoth school. And she was raised around a, a world of artists, musicians, artists, uh, writers, actors, whatever. And the confines of being in the school rub up against her more now than ever because she has something to say. She has a way of being. Um, She has some real stuff. And frequently in school, people really like to take that sandpaper and remove the edges from you, which are unique and yours and you certainly have a right to fail on them, but nobody should take them away from you before you have an opportunity to show them.
0: Oh, you are just speaking to my soul, Cork. <laughs> like, yeah. For real. Like we're, you know, all of us here, we, we actually, we met in grad school. We We've had a lot of, we've spent a lot of time in academia and I like have so much, uh, love and appreciation for all the years I spent in the academic world. And I, and there's so, so many good things that came out of it, but there is at the exact same time, uh, that's a very real experience. It was something I definitely experienced a lot in grad school, trying to mold you into something very specific. And in that process, taking away, uh, the, the things that are you unique about who you actually are, you know? And, um, and that's a hard, it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to navigate, but a lot of what we try and do with this platform, why we even started this podcast is because all of us wanted to just be who we were. We didn't want to become who maybe the academic institution was trying to mold us into. And I don't, it's a hard thing, but like it feels it feels right. I don't know. <laughs> like it feels feels like the right way to go. <laughs> yeah.
1: this, is, this is really what art, what you guys are doing, is really what needs to happen. I mean, conversations need to happen beyond academia, and you have yeah. to talk to people that make the people accessible, that this is it's possible to do this job. And, you know, some people are going to be really very uptight about it and very linear about it. And some of us are much looser and truly see it as just a part of living, not a special part, not a part that took a degree. Not, it's just it's what you do. And you're connected to this 2000 year history, which is exciting as hell.
0: Uh, very. What we've always yes. said yes,
1: you know, going back to Plato and fires and shadows on the cave, and who <laughs> knows what else was going on in the cave. But that it's is a- literally
2: Cork. how I started my uh college experience, Cork, was with the cave, <laughs> really?
1: Yeah. Cave.
2: yeah, yeah, that's a liberal arts education for you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: We need more liberal arts education.
2: <laughs> I enjoyed it. I understand that it's, yeah, it's it's an expensive route. So I get why not everyone is running in line. Um, but there were a lot of valuable things. I just, I love talking about art. I love the normalization of talking about art. And even in that sense, like just getting to talk about books like that was, that fed my nerdy soul very early on. That's not something people do a lot anymore.
1: Well, we find the people that we need. I mean, just, you have to. That's that's sustenance.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: And and hopefully, I think this is really exciting what you guys are doing. And it's going to be helpful. (laughs) Thank you.
0: That's so really appreciate that. Yes, thank you so much, Quirk.
1: Real art needs help. uh, We could
0: put that on a t-shirt. That's really, that's (laughs) that's a good line.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I think (gasps) the best the uh, the best T-shirt my wife and I ever saw was this little stick figure, stick uh, figure with its arms in the air. It said, "I pooped today." I said, this, this kind of takes care of it. This is a real, very real thing.
0: Yeah, <laughs> we yeah, all really. It, it, it really comes <laughs> down to that, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, so good. This has just been a wonderful conversation. I I mean, I know you have so much more to say and also other stories we'd like to get into. So if you'd like to come back at another time and talk to us again, you're- We'll have you back whenever. <laughs> very much welcome. We'd love to have you
1: back. Let me know when um, when you'd like to, and I would really be happy to because as it is, I'm going through my archive and all of this stuff is just sort of cascading back Right before my eyes, and I would love to talk about it.
0: This has been a great start to what I hope will be like the cork files. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I'm so here for it. Um, and I, yeah, just I mean, obviously, story is incredibly powerful, and you have some wonderful stories, but so much about your, your approach and the way um, you move through the world, I think will really resonate with a lot of artists out there. And, um, and that's, you know, really what we're trying to do is provide those kinds of approaches to making art that are a little, I guess, more human and a little less academic. So thank you so much for, for sharing your experiences we hope you will come back and talk to us again. Anything else you'd like to say to our listeners before we kind of wrap
1: things up? Um, hold, hold on one moment. What was that, Andrea? Don't
0: be afraid to fail. That's has you're M.O.
1: Yeah, my wife said, don't be afraid to fail. I've always said that to people. Absolutely not.
0: Lovely. Fantastic advice.
1: Great meeting you. Can't wait to do it again. Yeah, Thank you so much for being
0: here, Cork.
1: And And thanks, Scott, for inviting us and putting us together. Yes, thank thank you, Scott. Scott.
0: Shouts out, Scott. Scott, (laughs) we
2: appreciate you. And thank you so much for listening. We will catch you next time.
0: This is it. This guy's got it. He's figured it out.
2: (laughs) Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.